Hello and welcome to the Psych Summaries podcast. My name is Hannah and I will be having conversations with clinicians, academics and experts that have applications to the field of psychology and mental health. They have many years of experience, meaning they are trusted voices in niche subjects. But I invite you to consume the content with a critical perspective, since a one-size-fits-all approach rarely applies to mental health. I hope you learn something and enjoy listening. Today I am speaking to Dr. David McLaughlin, a consultant psychiatrist based in London. It has been such a difficult year and many people will have suffered with low mood. So today I'm going to pick David's brain on factors that lead to persistent low mood, protective factors and more. David, it would be really great to start by hearing a little bit more about your current role and the journey that you have taken to get there. Sure. Uh, So my name's Dr. David McLaughlin and I am a consultant psychiatrist. And in order to become a consultant psychiatrist, you have to go to medical school. So that's a big difference between a psychiatrist and a psychologist. Psychiatrists do prescribing, psychologists tend to do more of the talking therapies. So I went to medical school first and I did an extra degree in neuroscience, and then I came down to London, worked in general medicine, A&E, a little bit of GP, and then I decided to specialise in psychiatry. And so it was a six-year training programme, but I took, wow. bit, I took a bit of time out. I know, it was a long it, <laughs> it was a long time, but you're working, you're getting paid. And I, I broke it up with little bits and pieces of research, so... I did a research fellowship at the Institute of Psychiatry and also with the Centre of Sustainable Healthcare in Oxford. I did a a scholarship with them. Wow. So that kind of broke things up. And then along the way, I have tried to publish bits and pieces in in journals and textbooks, but I'm a terrible researcher. I'm actually very bad at research and I think I'm probably a little bit better as a clinician, I hope and also kind of doing bits and pieces of medical education type work as well. Well, I mean, research is so dense. I don't know how anyone brings out 600 plus papers. It's just beyond me. I think you have to have a certain brain to to do it. So as a psychiatrist, you work with probably very acutely unwell patients, but you must also treat depression, which affects so many people. It's known as one of the biggest disabilities worldwide. And I read that In the months leading up to Christmas in the UK, six million people were prescribed antidepressants, which to me was shocking, that statistic. I was wondering if you could give some insight as to what is actually going on on a biological slash physiological level when someone is experiencing persistent low mood. Yeah, so I like the fact that to use your phrase, use the phrase persistent low mood, because it's important to remember that when bad things happen, it's completely normal to feel sad and to feel low in mood. And it's normal for us to have that kind of a variation in our mood. It becomes a problem when, like you said, it's persistent. And along with low mood, people who are experiencing depression they might also experience other physical symptoms. So things like tiredness, fatigue, some bowel and gut symptoms. So sometimes things like actually irritable bowel, diarrhea, 
and um, or also constipation and might notice some changes in their appetite so typically you get loss of appetite and then with typical depression you will experience difficulty sleeping at night time and early morning wakening so waking up really early in the morning before you want to get up is also another classic sign but interestingly, you, you get a type of depression called atypical depression, mm-hmm. where people actually sleep more and they feel hungrier and they want to eat more. So that's an atypical depression. Other kind of kind of cardinal or key features of of um, low of persistent low mood and depression would include things like the difficulty experiencing pleasure, so difficulty to feel happy, loss of energy, difficulty concentrating a whole heap of things. So you asked me what's, what's going on biologically and with, with the brain. So gosh, it's complicated, right? Because there's, there's lots of things that could be going on. So our brains are actually really adaptable. And so there's a theory called the cytotoxic pathogenesis theory of, of depression. Mm-hmm. And when bad things happen to us during our lives, it can be really stressful. And when our bodies and our brains are stressed, we release a hormone called cortisol. Yeah. And there's been lots of studies in, in animals and also in people where they, they've shown basically that cortisol at high levels for the brain is toxic mm-hmm. and it damages the cells and it stops them from growing properly. So we call that cytotoxic. And we've looked at what happens in a petri dish. We've looked at what happens in animal autopsies, but also in real life people experiencing depression. There's a part of their brain called the hypothalamus where the the, the actual volume of that part of the brain is smaller. And, and the theory is that that's in relation to these stressful events where cortisol gets released and it's, it's damaging parts of, of the brain. So the more the more kind of traumatic or stressful events, the more the more vulnerable you are to experiencing this. In your brain, you've got all these different connections, and it's through these little connections between the nerves that your brain communicates, and it tells you what to think and what to feel and what to do. And so what should normally happen when you are feeling kind of kind of okay in your mood and when you're feeling happy, those those kind of communications should be working well and there should be neurotransmitters like dopamine, serotonin, noradrenaline that should be moving from one kind of nerve to the other nerve and kind of passing on this message to tell you what to think, feel and do. But when people are experiencing low mood for a long time, the behaviour of of those connections, it changes. That process is called synaptic plasticity because our brains are plastic. They can grow, change, adapt. And when you are persistently low in mood, it's because there's been a change in those synapses So the, and the communication between the, the synapses. And there's lots of different things that could be going on. So it could be that there's not enough of the neurotransmitter, that it's, it's not being recycled properly it's being mismanaged or there's not enough receptors on the on the receiving side. There's there's lots and lots of different things that can be going on. The thing that just really relieves me in, in hearing all of this is that this condition is just as similar as a physical illness. And I think that so many people talk about physical conditions, but 
when it comes to mental, people almost assume that it's a choice or it's just your thoughts, but actually something is going on on a deeper level that is actually changing the way that you perceive everything and that you're impacted by everything. And I just think it's really reassuring for anyone that is suffering with that to know that that's not their fault and actually that something is going on that they can change, you know, that plasticity. What I guess comes to mind then after that is how does one know if they might be experiencing depression rather than low mood? I mean, particularly in the last year with COVID, there's going to be a lot of people that have had low mood and persistent because the news is is very difficult. And, you know, recently because the weather's gotten worse and maybe your job is being affected and you've got more stresses. At what point do we or do you know that it is because of potentially a pathology rather than just a usual response in the brain to bad times? Yeah, so that's a really good question because right now a lot of people will be feeling kind of a bit down and not their usual selves. So if it's persistent, if it's lasting, if that low mood is lasting for more than a week or two, if it's like, you know, if it's beginning to last like a month or so that you are feeling consistently low in mood, the other key features are feeling low in energy mm-hmm. and then feel, having a difficulty in experiencing pleasure. Yeah. So things that would normally make you laugh and smile aren't making you laugh and smile anymore. You might have difficulty concentrating. So maybe watching a film to through the end or reading a book, maybe you might have difficulty with, like I said, like with sleep or appetite. And then also if it's actually affecting you functionally, if you know, you're know you finding it difficult to kind of concentrate with, with work or with you know, if it's affecting your relationships. So those are the, those, those are the, the key kind of differentiating things between, between um, just kind of normal variation in your mood and something that's more like a clinical depression that really needs to be addressed and treated. And, and obviously, you know, you can go straight to your GP when that is happening, but something, you know, that I read about a lot in, in mental health is those protective and risk factors. I was wondering whether we could identify some potential positive factors that can help us build resilience against the onset of and that's not again that's not to say that if you do all these things it's not going to happen because it's not your fault and it can happen on a biological level anyway but are there some protective factors that you can identify and maybe just touch on so i again these questions are really great hannah because i i I quite often get asked um about what causes mental illness mm. and how do we and how do we get it better so in terms of thinking about how we address it and how do we think about it how do we formulate what mental illness is and mm-hmm. um, the things that contribute to somebody becoming mentally unwell is exactly the same as when they become physically unwell so there's like you mentioned there's the biological factors the social factors and the psychological factors so the 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 basically the, the body, the genes, the, the physical stuff that we inherit and have you know, within us is a biology. So that might be maybe the number of serotonin receptors that you have in your brain or the sensitivity to, to dopamine or some of these biological things which are inherent. And then there's the environmental factors. So things like your work, your job, 
your um, relationships, your housing, accommodation. And then the, the third factor is the psychological. So we call this the biopsychosocial model. And the psychological factors are the ways in which you think, the patterns in which you think. And then you asked me about the protective factors. So when we think about those three domains, the biopsychosocial domain, we also, you can um, stratify this or put this into a grid with the four Ps. Predisposing factors, precipitating factors, the perpetuating factors and the protective factors. So in terms of like, say something like depression, you might have predisposing factors like the genes that you're born with. You might have been born with an allele, which is like a, uh, an arm of a chromosome, or one, of the, one of the chromosomes that you inherit, you, that is maybe less sensitive to serotonin. Right. Um, that would be a, a biological predisposing factor. But then a precipitating factor might be something like a traumatic event. Mm. And so that might be, you know, maybe maybe you've had something really terrible that's happened to you that's made you feel really stressed and you've had like a really high, like prolonged period of elevated cortisol levels. And that's just what, you know, you might have been vulnerable to depression, but this is what triggers it. This right. is what's precipitated it. And then the perpetuating factors, that might be something like, I don't know, maybe you're homeless or you don't have a job, you're socially isolated. Maybe there's social things going on which are perpetuating and prolonging this episode of depression. Mm -hmm. But you asked me about the protective factors, and I know I've rambled, but I just wanted to put it in context. Of no, it's really helpful, really, really helpful. If I was like a social factors, and then the, the four Ps, mm -hmm. the predisposing uh precipitating, perpetuating, and protective. Yeah. Um, and then the protective factors, things like things that are going to keep you well, essentially, and prevent you from getting mentally ill. For some people, it could be faith. For a lot of people, it's having a regular routine and having a structure to your week and, and stability. So things like education, employment, training, volunteering, those things can give you some kind of structure and routine. Also having a network, a supportive network and sense of community, a community where you feel included and valued. That could be your biological family, but it could also be friends and just a network. And I guess everyone is different and everybody is going to be so unique. So obviously it's hard to say what's protective for one person and what's not for another. Yeah. Something you touched on was the word trauma. I see a lot on Instagram and social media about the concept of trauma and there seem to be two groups. There's one group which suggests that trauma can be anything ranging from invalidation uh, mm. to parents separating to loss to job insecurity causing prolonged distress. And then I see the other side of the coin, which says trauma is a significant life event that actually causes potentially very real flashbacks and it really, really impacts you. So first part of the question would be, what is your interpretation, definition of that term trauma? And secondly, do we need to address these traumatic elements I guess to our whole life from our childhood adverse life events in order to treat low mood and or depression or can we treat depression 
on its own without therapy? Can you just treat it using medication? Again, these are such good and interesting questions. Um, so one of my the favourite parts of my clinical job, actually, is, um, is when I work, I, I've worked quite a lot with refugees and asylum seekers. Oh, wow. Yeah, and it's super rewarding because they're, they're people that actually really, like, they really, really need help. And there's, yeah. there's so much that you can, you can do for them. In terms of trauma, it doesn't matter if it's real or if it's perceived. Okay. Um, so if you think that you're going to die or if you believe that you're going to be assaulted or that something terrible is going to happen, that is just as bad as it actually happening. It doesn't matter if it's real or perceived. It's a subjective experience. So, you know, if you're scared of spiders and but a house spider is not going to actually kill you. Yeah. But if somebody holds a hundred house spiders in front of you and you have a specific spider phobia and you believe that these will potentially kill you, what's important is if it's real for that person, it's real. So that's what I always try and make clear um, that you can't invalidate somebody else's experience of trauma and dismiss it as because it, it doesn't matter what your opinion is. It's about that person's experience for them. Was it was it traumatizing for them? And did they was there did they feel that there was a really severe threat potentially to life or limb? That's that's how I define trauma when I'm working with like refugee cases in, in court. The other thing as well, just to again, which I which I like to point out again in with these kind of court cases, is the trauma can be something that you experience or that you witness. And it again, it doesn't matter whether it was witnessed firsthand or even secondhand. So, I mean, I've, I've, I've seen cases of people who've got PTSD mm. because they've witnessed the Twin Towers falling in New York, yeah. but they've witnessed it on television and they found that traumatizing. Mm. And I had another case of a man who was in the military. And I'm just thinking about how I explain this without kind of breaching confidentiality but he didn't even see the traumatic incident. He was just aware of it and he'd been involved in making the decision, which resulted in the death, the deaths of several civilians, like including children. Mm-hmm. So he didn't even see the, he didn't actually even see the trauma. He didn't see, he didn't even witness mm-hmm. the death of, of, of these people, but he was aware of it and he'd been involved in the decision-making process, which resulted in the death of, of these civilians. So that was his trauma um, and it resulted in him having flashbacks, nightmares, hypervigilance, really anxious all the time and and certain things would trigger it. So certain words, smells, and this is all completely authentic and and real. So I think it's just really, it's really important when when we talk about trauma that we, we understand that it can be different for different people. If it's real for them, it's real. Yeah, Anna, and going back to what we were saying earlier, someone's experience of mental health and someone's experience of trauma is completely different to another. So I I guess, yeah, the key to take away for me is talking to a professional about it and getting the help you need. If you feel you need the help, then you are allowed to get that help. Doesn't matter how small or how big it feels. 
Totally. Can I just can I just pick up a point there as well? Because yes, in terms of like that kind of idea of, of of trauma and bad things contributing to low mood, I love like I love analogies and comparisons with physical health. Yeah. It's we all have it, we all of us can experience mental health difficulties. Yeah. Um, all of us can experience a psychotic episode, all of us can experience depression, but we just have different thresholds. And it's just like we all have a different threshold for diabetes. Mm-hmm. So some people can eat donuts their whole life and drink Coca-Cola all day long and still never developed diabetes because of the genes that they've inherited and their lifestyle, like they're, maybe they're exercising, because of the particular characteristics of their biopsychosocial makeup. Wow. They can eat donuts all day long and they don't get diabetes. Somebody else just eats one or two donuts a week and a bit of Coca-Cola here and there and they get diabetes. Wow. And it's... And it's because they're more vulnerable to it. So we all have a threshold, a vulnerability to certain illnesses, yeah. um, whether that's diabetes or depression. We all have a threshold. And for some of us, we need a bit more to push us over the edge. And for some other people, it's just a little bit, they don't require so much yeah. to push them over the edge. And again, it's just it's, it just comes down to the biopsychosocial makeup and how you're affected by those four Ps. Wow. So it really, really does go to show that every person's, health is so unique everyone's got completely different factors and actually hearing you say this is really important what you've inherited plays a huge part in your health whether physical or mental so again not feeling bad that you feel bad it's not your fault you've it's not just because you've been dealt a bad hand or you've made a mistake and it's contributed to how you feel or you know whatever it is actually that there's very intricate things going on at the same time so there's a very big picture to think about I mean just on that note about people feeling bad or Mm. um, about their mental health or feeling guilty Mm. so 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 one of the one of the key symptoms of depression is increase in guilt um, increase in hopelessness increased feelings of shame um, and helplessness. So hopelessness, helplessness, and guilt are the kind of, again, three key symptoms of of depression. So if there's anybody who's watching this and they're feeling bad or guilty about their mental health condition, whether that's their anxiety disorder, depression, or eating disorder, whatever it is that they have, if you're feeling guilty about it or hopeless about it, just listen, just think to yourself, is that me or is that is that the depression that's talking? Yes. Yeah. You know? I, I love that. I I think it's really hard to distance yourself from the pathology um, if you have been clinically diagnosed, that is. But even just your mood and your response to difficult life circumstances, your emotions are not you and you mm. you don't, you know, they're part of you, but that doesn't mean that you are inherently a bad person for thinking that or you know responding the way you did I think actually it's just Mm. kind of developing self-awareness about it. One thing that psychologists often do is they get people to distance themselves from the disorder Mm. so these aren't your thoughts these aren't your anorexic thoughts or your OCD thoughts and it's the OCD that's talking that's the depression talking that's the anorexia talking and people often give like a name to the thoughts so they they might have these thoughts inside their head saying you are too fat you don't deserve to eat this food you haven't done enough exercise today you don't deserve to 
to have the milkshake. And what a lot of clinical psychologists will say is, distance yourself from those thoughts. Those aren't your thoughts. That's the anorexic thoughts. That's that's Anna. And sometimes people will give it a name. That's Anna speaking. Um, and then again, I have, uh, I've actually got a very good friend who's got um, severe OCD. And what he found really helpful is being able to say, that's not me. Mm-hmm. That's that's the O talking. Yeah. That's yes. and 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 so just again to this is what a lot of psychologists will do. It's not you. That's the that's the depression. So if so, just I, I was just listening to you and I was thinking, God, if there's anybody watching this feeling guilty or hopeless or or um, helpless or kind of bad about their illness, that's not necessarily you. That's that's the depression talking. I have to say that's very, very, very powerful. I love that. One thing I'd like to ask you as a psychiatrist is whether you think that medication always plays a role. Can you treat a mood disorder without medication? Again, I I know this is going to be very, very subjective and unique to each individual, but yeah, I guess just talking about the role of medication but and also talking therapy as well uh, what does the research show uh okay there's there's a lot in there so okay. i i like to practice what we call patient-centered care okay. so so the most important person is the patient yeah. and the way i see myself is i see, I see myself as uh, an expert but um my role is not to tell people what to do my role is to share my knowledge and experience and help the patient or the person navigate the system, navigate their experience of whatever it is that they're going through, and then do the best that I can to share my knowledge with them and say, well, look, here, here's the options, here's what the literature is showing us, um, and give them that knowledge and experience to help them make the best decisions that are right for them as an individual. Yeah. Now, in terms of treatment options for people who are experiencing depression, um, again, it goes back to those the, the biopsychosocial model that we talked about earlier on. Yeah. So there's there's treatment that you can give people biologically, um, and that might be with medication with an antidepressant. They work. They do come with side effects, yeah. um, but anti- antidepressants work for a lot of people. They don't work for everybody. Some people will experience some side effects like stomach upsets or um, increasing anxiety or sleep disturbances. So I think it's always important to be completely open and honest. But for some people, antidepressants are life-saving. Yeah. Um, and I mean, that's, it's, I mean, I, and I mean that actually, it, it could potentially save your life, but it's not for everybody. And so I think it's really important that you find a doctor that you can work with that will kind of listen to all of your experiences and concerns and give you good quality advice. So I... I, I do very often prescribe antidepressants. But the other thing which is really important is addressing not just the biology, but also the psychological factors and the sociological factors. So again, when I'm speaking to somebody who's got depression, I will ask them, you know, like, tell me about tell me about your life. Like, I want to get to know you as a person. What's happening for you at home? You know, are you in a relationship? You know, tell me about the relationship. I don't, I don't put words in their mouth. So that's why you always start with open questions like, tell me. Or like, oh, I'm really interested. Like, I'd love to know more about this. Tell me, tell me more about your job. And then find out if there's anything going on, maybe with like relationships, with their accommodation, or with their employment 
that could be contributing. Mm. So, you know, for example, if you're homeless or you're in unstable housing and you constantly feel afraid or worried that you're going to be abused or you're living with somebody that's you're living with somebody that's psychologically abusing you, putting you down emotionally, um, telling you that you're worthless. You know, all the antidepressants in the world are not going to make you feel better if you feel afraid, frightened, worthless, disempowered um, and helpless. So that's why it's really important to practice holistically, look at the whole picture. So those are the big things like relationships, housing, employment education like the structure in your in your life and then there's fi- there's fine tuning that you can do with you know things like exercise and diet so the national institute of clinical excellence have a set of guidelines and that tells doctors how we should be treating patients okay. and so for, for mild to moderate depression the research has shown that regular exercise is as good as antidepressants Wow. So when they say regular exercise, what they're talking about is just 30 minutes of um, light cardio. So maybe a jog, but if, you, if you're not up to running or jogging, even a walk for about 30 minutes, a couple of times a week. So for moderate depression, that, that, that's got the same kind of impact and benefit as antidepressants. That's remarkable. That is in itself. That's really amazing, isn't it? Wow. Yeah. I mean, there's other things as well. So I mentioned I, I did a fellowship, uh, sorry, I, sco- I got a scholarship in, in sustainable healthcare. And one of the things that we were really interested in was um, horticultural therapy, so nature therapy, yeah. getting people out into, into the fresh air, exposing yeah. them to, to nature. Um, and again, there's loads of, like, it's actually really incredible, like um, some of the, the evidence that's out there about how when you expose yourself to kind of things like bird song, blue skies, kind of grassy, greeny, leafy areas, the levels of stress hormones like cortisol, they go down. Wow. And you sleep better at night time and you experience less anxiety and tiredness and phys- physical symptoms just because of that environmental change, taking you out from like a very densely populated urban area and putting you into a more rural setting. Um, so there's all sorts of lifestyle factors. It's not all about antidepressants, but antidepressants do work. Not for everybody, but they definitely do work. So don't dismiss them. So basically talking to the GP and making sure that you're getting an understanding of all of these different things that you can offer. Hopefully the doctor should be able to talk you through all sorts of options. I know that there's lots of talking therapy, government funded things as well. So it's just about, you know, actually utilising your GP and asking, even if you feel that they're not giving you enough, it's just being bold enough to say, well, what about this? Yeah, the other, I mean, the other thing that I would say to people, because sometimes people are very, they've got very like kind of concrete, fully formed ideas about what will work for them and what won't work for them. So sometimes people will dismiss antidepressants and all they want is like dietary advice or talking therapy. But equally, sometimes you get the other end of the spectrum where, you know, especially with men, they don't want talking therapy. They just want a pill that will like fix it. But I think what, you know, a good doctor will do is they will give you all the options. Yeah. Here's your menu. Of, there's, there's a menu of things here that might help. Yeah. And what I'd always encourage people to do is be open-minded, give it a try, you know, you know, give it, you know, what do you, what do you have to lose by trying talking therapy or by trying a little bit of exercise, getting out in the fresh air, you know, just a little bit, even just give it a go, give it a try. And, and the same is true of antidepressants actually, or medication. 
obviously it's always patient's choice, but I, I would always encourage people to be, try and be as open-minded as you can. I do think, sadly, there is still a very, very big stigma around using antidepressants. When you think about it, it doesn't really make sense because I don't think there's a stigma around taking other medications for physical illness. I don't think people tend to think twice or judge anyone for taking an antibiotic. But when it's an antidepressant, it's it, it gets people going for some reason. The last thing I'd really love to touch on is if someone knows another person suffering, whether that is with a clinical depression or whether it is just low mood from the very, very difficult circumstances that everyone's living in, what are your top pieces of advice for those people? Yeah, advice that I'd give people to help them support others around them. Mm. I think one of the best things that you can do is creating a safe space okay. for people to talk to you, letting them know that it's that they're there, that they're available, um, and that they're happy to listen. I think sometimes when people are quite low in mood and, and experiencing depression, they worry about being a burden, mm. and they worry, about, they worry about burdening their friends or their family, and so they don't want to talk about how difficult things are because, they, like, like we kind of touched on, they feel guilty or ashamed of what they're experiencing, mm. so they worry that they're going to burden people around them. So, I think what is really nice for somebody that's experiencing this is just to have somebody close to them say, "I'm I'm here," and. I, I would love to know what's going on. You know, like I want, I want to listen. I want, I want to know what you're experiencing, and it's okay to tell me if things are really difficult. You know, make it a safe space where you give them permission to to share whatever they're worried about, and and actually, really listening. Yeah. Um, you know, and and allowing those silences. Because I think when you, when you allow a silence, it gives people the chance to fill that space. The other thing I do sometimes if I've noticed somebody close to me or I'm worried about them, I might just, in a non-judgmental way, just raise what I've noticed. Right. So I might, in a completely non-judgmental way, um, I might say to somebody, Anna, you know, I've, I've, I've noticed that like you're drinking a bit more than usual, or I've, I've noticed that, that you're, not as, you're not as chatty in the WhatsApp group as usual, or I've, I've noticed that you're working really long hours at the moment. You know, tell somebody what you've, what you've noticed and try and do it in a non-judgmental way, and then maybe leave a little bit of a silence. And then sometimes I would just say, to, and I actually have done this actually in my personal life before. I've, I've kind of said that. The next question, the follow-up question is like, do you want to talk about it? Yeah. They might, they might say no. Yeah. And then you did, and then I would say, that's all right. That's okay. Well, if you do want to talk about it, I'm, I'm around. But you just have to put in that groundwork to show that you are a safe person. They can trust you. It's not a burden. You actually want to have those conversations with them. And it's on their terms when it's when it's when they're ready. Thank you so much for answering these questions. They've been so 
well thought out and really nuanced and there's been so much depth and I think you can look on the NHS website and you can read about the the biopsychosocial approach and things but actually hearing you put that into context and use real life examples is really powerful so I really appreciate your well thought out answers and for taking the time to answer the questions so thank you so much yeah no worries I love I love what you're doing with psych summaries and I think uh, it's like a really much needed um, presence on social media to have to have like a resource like psych summaries which can help translate the science into and the research into a more digestible form um, and it's it's really important that that kind of good quality type resource exists in the social media space it just became apparent to me over time that many of the mental health accounts I followed were very, very based in personal experience, which is so powerful. But actually, when it comes to knowing what the research says and what to do, we can only rely on professionals. And even then, the professionals will say, I cannot give you advice unless I am working with you one to one. And I think it's just there's always a big a big gap between what's what's in the research and what's in practice but thank you so much again and I really think that people are going to learn a lot about low mood and depression from the chat so thank you great thanks Anna thank bye. you bye bye I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode with Dr David McLaughlin it is such a difficult time right now and I encourage you to be kind to yourself but most importantly ask for help if and when you need it. If you'd like to follow David's work you can find him on Instagram at at offdutydoctor which I will link in the information and if you enjoyed the episode and want to keep up with psych summaries please do subscribe and provide feedback as well as follow the account at psych summaries on Instagram. Thanks for listening See you next time.